Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am honored to have Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, who is the Director of Interfaith Affairs at the Simon Wiesenthal Center and an author and founder of the widely distributed, widely read Cross Currents magazine that deals with all kinds of difficult and controversial ethics and concepts that are going on in the Jewish world today. He is also a professor at many law schools, well-known lecturer and writer, and in general, one of the people that really contributes to the way that modern Jews think about their lives and their world. And we go through quite a few different, very important fundamentals about how do you analyze your relationship with your community, how do you do the best you can do, and how do you learn to embrace openness while at the same time have a backbone. So with no further ado, I am honored to have Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein. So how did you get started in Los Angeles? You were born there, grew up there. Oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't even play volleyball. Um, I, I come from the, the cradle of Jewish civilization, as I tell my evangelical friends all the time. I tell them that, you know, the story in the Bible about God speaking to Abraham and telling him to leave his ancestral abode and go to the place that he was going to select for him. I told him, you know, we have a rabbinic tradition that when that happened, God was speaking to Abraham in Brooklyn. And <laughs> half of the time they actually believe it. Now, I'm not from Brooklyn. I'm actually uh, purebred Manhattan. Wow. Uh, I'm from, from Manhattan, like uh, most other Jews around the world. And uh, lived there uh, through marriage and kolel. And when the money ran out, um, started looking for, uh, for jobs and wound up in, uh, in Los Angeles where life is comfortable. What, what were you doing in LA? I came out for a new academic institution called Yeshiva of Los Angeles. I was a magachir. I was uh, basically a Torah teacher. That is my first and second and third love in life. Teaching Who's, Torah. Who are some now, of you? Sorry, sorry, go ahead. In, in, the, in the course of, uh, of several years, the program that was, was started uh, kind of fizzled. Uh, Yeshiva of Los Angeles became more Yeshiva of, of University of Los Angeles high schools and the, the base medrash pretty much disappeared. Uh, I wound up continuing outreach, which was my first professional love and had been doing even before I left uh, New York. But after a while, that also kind of changed. And at one point in my life, without really uh, any warning, uh, I was picked up by our sister institution, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and basically told Adlerstein, we got good news for you and bad news. The good news is you still have a job. Bad news is you're not working for us. So though it was something that I had never envisioned and never thought, saw myself doing, uh, probably because they did have a big mouth. Uh, something that I, I knew for quite a while before, I was uh, invited in to, to join the Simon Wiesenthal Center as part of their 
advocacy staff, I guess is the way you would look at it. And in time, I became the director of interfaith affairs for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is the largest Jewish membership uh, group in uh, North America. So if we could go back a little bit, who were some of your early influences that pushed you and gave you that drive for advocacy, for Jewish outreach, for, for education? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. What, what's the common denominator of all of them? Um, time's up. I would, I would say it's, it's responsibility. It's, it's achrayus, achrayut. Uh, having a sense of you're here for a purpose, God put you here for a mission, figure out what that mission is and, and go for it. And all the parts of the puzzle that you mentioned are all part of the same thing, whether it's teaching Torah, doing outreach, or working as an advocate for the interests of the Jewish people and the, and the Jewish state. So to answer your question, who were the influences? They were varied. I uh, attribute a lot of the sense of responsibility to Mari Virabi, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, Hennef Leibowitz Zetzal. While I was in Yeshiva, I was close with two other amazing people who really shaped me intellectually. Uh, one was Rav Nachman Bullman Zetzal, who from behind the scenes is probably responsible for more of the people that some people would call the leaders or the people who are out there of the present generation than anybody else. And I was also privileged for 10 years to be very, very close with the Varya Kaplan's and so on. Um, so between these, between these three figures, uh, my mind was sort of, of open to, to Mahshava, to Jewish thought, to Jewish philosophy. Um, I got into some of the Sfarim, some of the works that uh, I think made me somewhat successful in, uh, in Chinuch, in teaching Torah, uh, particularly Maharal, later on, later on uh, Slonim, and um, you know, the, rest, the, the rest is history. LA is a wonderful place. It's laid back. You don't have to worry so much and, hey, what's my neighbor going to say? I can get away with things and to get away with things in Los Angeles I could never have done in New York. And I figured that was part of the reason why I got a spark was sent me there. So when you say get, get away with certain things, you mean certain styles of teaching or certain ways of engaging the public or what specifically do you think was uh, an most, most Mostly the latter, having a varied set of interests within a Torah framework. Uh, some of the things that, uh, that I did in California, which I'm, I'm, I'm proud of doing, but requires some explanation to people who are not used to it. The, the sheer amount of involvement I have with non-Jewish communities, non-Jewish faith communities, uh, was uh, something new even for me. But the fact that I had a, a, uh, a foundation of, of uh, hashkafa, of hashkafa, from some real giants in the Torah world and maintained contact with some very, very important people in the Torah world to this day gave me the, uh, the confidence to go ahead and, uh, and, and proceed. Uh, there would have been a lot more criticism in New York and have to worry about how is your daughter ever going to find the Shidduch. I remember one time uh, speaking to the Navaminsky Rebbe about a particular program, whether I should participate or not. And he said, I don't see anything wrong with it, but you know, you're going to have to live with the people in your community. So I said, Rebbe, I have eight children, Kanai Nahara. Seven of them are boys. One is a girl, and she's already married. Rebbe, I can do whatever I want. Now, 
I don't do whatever I want. I, 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 do, I do subjugate myself to what I still proudly call Das Torah and, uh, and, Torah, and Torah authority. But I did have more latitude than if I would have lived in Borough Park. For a person that's looking to make the impact and have these kind of opportunities that are coming up, what kind of advice would you give someone that does want to, I don't want to call it unconventional, but like what you're saying with your, with your work of, of working with the non-Jewish communities, for example, as a major focus of what you do, what kind of advice would you give someone looking to go into that kind of leadership? Some of it is, uh, is predictable. The first is that you have to be well-grounded in Torah uh, and you have to maintain contact with Torah people of, of substance. Uh, otherwise, you either wind up to be an irresponsible loose cannon or you make lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Uh, so you have to know what you're coming home to. You're coming home to a Torah community that's solid, but one that gives you enough latitude. Now, this is where a lot of people kind of make a mistake and where I think Akadosh Baruch decided just in the nick of time to invent the internet. There are lots and lots and lots of people who take the attitude that you just hinted at. Um, there gotta be something more to this, to this lifestyle and, and, and the things that I'm doing, which are meaningful and terrific and they, they, they present the foundation of my family and my community, but, now, Torah goes beyond that, and I feel within myself the need to do something more. A lot of people who, who feel kind of restricted and stymied in the Torah world think that they're the only ones on the face of the earth. That is wrong for two reasons. A, you're not. There are lots and lots and lots of people who are sort of living between communities. Sort of, they, they have the, the fierce dedication to Torah, to Torah learning, to halacha of everyone in the Haredi world, while at the same time appreciate openness, appreciate the, the, the creativity of the modern Orthodox world. And they're living literally between them. And they think that they're the only ones, but they're not. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people like that. And that's one of the reasons why I began Cross Cards, really to talk to people who are sort of in between the two worlds and just let them know that you're not alone. <laughs> there are lots of others out there. So that's part of it. The, the second half of it is, um, if, if I had to pick one piece that I think I'm the proudest of, of all the pieces I, I've written for Cross Cards, I don't think anybody even remembers the piece, but I remember it and, and I, I point to it all the time. Uh, it occurred to me once that um, there was a major difference between sports fans in South America and the U.S. It was a week where a number of people had been killed horribly in stampedes in soccer stadiums. Now, you know, we, we, can, we can take our NFL championships pretty seriously as well, but you don't find people getting trampled in the parking lot. Uh, and I, I argued that the difference is that a sports team is, is good for, for entertainment. For some people, it goes further than that. It's something you identify with. But you really get in trouble when you over-identify. And in the end, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't ask us what team we're on or what colors we're wearing, but how good we were at being Ovdei Hashem. You, most people, with some exceptions, can't do it alone. So you need a community, you need 
leader group. But the problem is when you over-identify with that group and you feel that everything that that group is calling upon you to do has to be practiced and even understood and defended, then you wind up not so true to yourself. You wind up defending the indefensible. You wind up with robots sometimes. You wind up with stasis in the community. So I argued for finding community, finding group, but avoiding the problem of over-identifying. I, I like quoting an old friend of mine. You know, he's not a from Jew, but uh, he's done a lot of good for, for, uh, for, for, uh, for Jews. That's Dennis Prager. I've been personally friendly with for a long time. He has a great line that he's used for decades, which is, I don't care which brand of Judaism you identify with, as long as you're ashamed of it. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to be a Haredi Jew, uh, but I would be ashamed of it if I would have to defend everything that goes on in the community in the name of what some of my friends and neighbors think is, is, uh, is proper. You have to be true enough to yourself to recognize what, what things are defensible, what things are good for you, and what things you're just going to have to break away just a little bit because your particular kids have different needs. That's such a fundamental and important ideology that I would love to develop a little bit more with you. One of the major challenges that a lot of Bali Chuba have is when you enter into the world of, of Torah, so many concepts are coming down from your rabbi, from your community, from the standards of the, of the you know, institutions that you go to or the community that you decide to land yourself in. And oftentimes you don't have the level of self-confidence or clarity to know, okay, so what am I allowed to pick and choose and where do I seek other while legitimate sources of Torah? Um, is not within the confines of our community, if you want to say. So if you could speak to that a little bit about developing that self-confidence and the practical methodology for developing a Torah that is unique to you and not um, sort of like squishing you into a place that you don't necessarily need to be squished into. So do I have to do something as difficult as that or can we try something easier like diffusing the Israel-Palestine conflict? Something like that, yeah. We could, we could take the easy way out. Yeah, I, I, I wish I wish I could I could tell you, period, what the balance is. Uh, certainly, I couldn't do it even if I knew the answers in the space of a half-hour podcast. I think there are a number of things that are important that, that at least begin an answer. One is that people, whether they're balichuba or not balichuba, have to make sure that they don't lose their essential selves. There are parts of yourself which are good and put there by design by the Rebana Shalom, they're part of the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted you to be different as an individual. And one of the most tragic things in life is when that inner voice is snuffed out. Now, we don't live life by just living through that inner voice. Uh, that's why we have a Torah. We need that outer voice. Shamshul Falher says that was the difference between the Nachash, the primordial serpent, and Chava. The Nachash said, hey, you know, I was created by God also, and this tree looks fine to me, no ill effects. And the difference between the nachash, between the serpent and, and Chava, and a human being, is that we must listen to the voice, not only the inner voice, but the voice coming from HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the Torah. But that doesn't mean snuffing out that inner voice. When you find that your essential self 
is really getting quashed, you've got to step back sometimes, somehow and say, what's going wrong here? This is, this is just not the way the revolution wants me to fit in. Number two, you have to find the right people. It's practically impossible to live with the advice and the guidance of everybody around in the Torah world. It's not monochromatic, even though it looks that way at times. And it's not univocal. There are different voices. It's always been that way. And the Torah tolerates that and even advocates it. There's a reason why the 12 Shvatim, the 12 tribes, got separate brachas. Why the Torah emphasized, even though they had the commonality of all living Egypt, leaving Egypt together, why they were then put in a, in, a, in, a, in a divinely arranged array around the Mishkan, because different groups have different things that, that they're supposed to accomplish. You've got to find the people in the Torah world. It won't come instantly, and there's no website where you can find it just through the click of a mouse. But you have to find people who's, who are, are Tamidei Chachamim. You're not going to go off into into uh, where, where people don't know very much about Torah, but people whose, whose, whose Torah learning and Torah experience is beyond cavil, but nonetheless understand you, you understand them, or the kind of Torah that they're teaching within the Torah world resonates with you. For some people, the Torah of the Satmarav is gonna work a lot better than Rav Kook, but for the person, for whom Rav Kook resonates better than the Satmarav, you're probably better off learning a little bit more Ein Ayah than learning Al Hagul of Al Hatzmuli. And then once you feel that certain resonance with a certain Gadol, because in the cases that you both mentioned, you know, they're not around anymore except in their Sfarim, do you then try to find uh, a rabbi or a community that also needs that? Or how do you? kind of balance that out with the reality that, you know, we sometimes can only have relationships with either the rabbi in our community or, you know, now thank God the internet outside of our community, but it's still somewhat limited in terms of what we can access and who has time for us. Right, so here's where I'm gonna start sounding like really dumb because they can't solve all of the problems. You're correct that your, your rabbin cannot be people who died 50 years ago or even five years ago. You do need uh, live rebellion and live, live guidance and mentors. Um, I think that it pays to keep in mind what uh, Rehari Kaplan's at once told me. Uh, Gmar says in the last parak of Sanhedrin, the Iqvisad the Mashicha Emes And it's usually translated as, well, the Pasuk means that as we get closer to, to Mashiach, the, Pasuk, the passage from the Gemara, as we get closer to Mashiach, MS will, will be lacking. But the Gemara says nederis from the word eider, which means a flock. It's nasu adarim adarim v'halcholahem. It'll be split up between different flocks will all go off in a different direction. Rabbi Kaplan suggested that as we get closer to the end, different parts of Torah MS are not gonna be found within the same person, the same community you will have to have somebody who you really trust implicitly for halacha. That person is not necessarily the person you'll go to for Eitzah, and not necessarily the person you'll go for uh, growth in machshava or guidance in where do I fit in and what's this all about. You, you people today more than ever probably need multiple 
our teachers, if they're not fortunate enough to find it in one person where everything resonates. But that's okay. That's okay. You can get it from different people. And one of the beautiful things, again, about the internet is that you're not restricted to where you are geographically. We really do live in virtual communities. We live within geographic communities and at Sibor, where we may have a Mokam Kavua, where we dive in and we interact with all the people in that shul, that meaning all the time, but we also have parts of ourselves that are fed and nourished by friends and, and, and mentors and even rebellion that we, uh, we deal with, we, we interact with electronically. That's such an such a amazing concept that I wish was taught more, and again, I just come through the Bali Tuvo worlds, but the idea of a person essentially taking responsibility, believe it or not, you know, wild concept, for their own life and then trying to ascertain, you know, what do I need and where and then going after and getting it as opposed to just kind of shutting off your mind and following the first person who brought you in the door, so to speak. Yeah, what a, what a novel idea that one responsibility is of her own life. Uh, and look, you know, we see the casualties when that doesn't happen, when that, when that doesn't happen, when people don't. It works fine for some people, and for those people, they have no need to do anything else. But for lots of other people, they're crushed in the process, their children are turned off in the process, marriages fail because of it. Uh, I'm not a great advocate of that. So something else that's really fascinating for me is that in the world of outreach, and you have a ton more experience than I do, you know, just looking at where college and high school students are versus, you know, when I started my career a little bit over a decade ago, it, it's in a lot of ways very, very different. And you mentioned that the Marl and the Slamour both really sort of apply to this generation. And I was curious if you had any ideas why that specifically works and if you think that it isn't a process of change now or if a lot of the ideas are actually just as relevant now as when you started teaching. Whoa. Um, I would have to split that into two halves. I would say that the Slonimer Rebbe, you know, uh, to a large extent, was the Rebbe of the generation and can, continues on. And through the, the writings of, of, of his son, which was also very, very popular. What made the Rebbe so successful is his honesty and his experience. He had decades and decades of experience with Hasidim, and he didn't pull any punches. He saw what the issues were. And he writes again and again and again about people with issues of amuna, people whose amuna is cyclical and waxes and wanes. He speaks about people with wrestling with real issues of... What do you, what do you mean cyclical, just to be, to be clear? Uh, that amuna rarely stays on, at one plane. Uh, there, there are people who have some better days and worse days, and, and that didn't even start with Salam Rebbe. The idea, I think, is in the Zohar that there has to be, uh, you read the Tzorach Aliyah, that you can't get to the next Madrega until you kind of slip off the one before, are appalled by it, or motivate yourself to scamper back up the mountain to a higher position that you were, that you were before. But there's a beautiful piece at the beginning of my midbar. I remember it's the first partial, the second, where he talks about Gershon, Kahas, and Murari. I, I would really urge everybody to, to take a look at that piece and the avoda, the different avoda of three kinds of people and, and what it means practically. I do have a chapter on it in my book, 
Has that a self-promotion? I, I did one volume on Siva Shalom, and there's another one, hopefully, that'll come out pretty soon. Where, who, who published those? The first one was, was self-published. The, uh, the next volume will, will, looks like it'll be Karain. Awesome. Great. Okay. Now, for the other Svarim, morale would take us a little longer than we have to talk about why I think morale is uh, more popular today than when morale lived and even for the next hundred years after. That, that's complicated, but the morale, like some of the Svarim, was not popular, uh, half as popular in his lifetime or even good while after, until he was sort of discovered and fit the needs of the generation. There are two other works uh, that I think are exactly what you said, more relevant today than when they were, when they were written. I believe if they were better understood, they would so enhance the intellectual, the spiritual lives of people, especially those who are trying to confront the wider world out there. Those are Rav Shamshin Hirsch, absolutely positive, is more relevant than when he wrote it. He did a great- His commentary on the Torah. Excuse me? Think his commentary on the Torah. The commentary on the Torah, pretty much everything else he wrote as well. It's true of Choreb, it's true of uh, the 19 letters, but certainly the commentary on the Torah, which I think is, is the best, plus the collected writings, some fantastic essays there. The other one is Rav Kook, who I think one of the tragedies of the generation is that people got so caught up in, well, we don't like his politics, and he's, I don't have a problem with politics as much as others, but even if I did, to set, not to be able to separate the godless of his Torah and, and his machshava in particular, dealing with the, the intellectual issues of today, of what modernism is about and, and what it's like to live in the world and to live part of a world community and with other faiths and with other people and to still know who you are and why we're different. Um, I, 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 again, I think it's tragic that more people are not acquainted with the Hashkafa of, uh, of Rav Kook. Between those two, between Rav Kook and Rav Shamshon Fall Hirsch, people had a great uh, grounding in their thought. I think life would be, a lot, be very different for a lot of thinking people. It's fascinating. There's so much. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll make two just short questions. After this very long time in LA and a very productive part of your career, what made you make Aliyah? Why did you move to Hawaii now? What are you looking to accomplish there that you couldn't do in LA? Um, well, one thing that I hope I can do here is uh, make a contribution to the largest community of Jews in the world. Uh, I was born after the establishment of the state, but I've uh, lived with a lot of guilt. What have I done for it? I look at the contributions of so many people from, not from, but to turn this country into what it is. And like, what was I doing? Like, you know, like sitting back in the comfort of Los Angeles. I've lived with that kind of guilt and uh, making the move would assuage it somewhat. Um, I remember years ago when Rabbi Beryl Wine made the move from, uh, from Muncie, I was uh, considered uh, as a candidate for uh, taking over the school. And I asked him the same question he just asked me. And he made a great argument that uh, most people have to kind of reinvent themselves at some point in their life. And they're better off doing it at the height of their powers. Uh, because otherwise you kind of get old and stale and you know, you just stick around until they cart you out in the wheelbarrow. 
I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. So I, I figured this is a way of kind of starting over and, and trying in a, in a, in a different venue. Uh, I'm not starting off entirely fresh. I did take my job with me. So I'm still a full, full-time uh, employee of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Still keeping that up, but I, you know, there are 24 hours in the day and I have a little bit of time and uh, hope to do things here that can't do in the States and hope that I can atone somewhat for the life of comfort. I, I say that uh, one of the, uh, there, there were sort of three people involved in this decision pushing. One was Rabbi Wine, one was Shmuel Kamenetsky, who once uh, one of my sons asked him, why am I here still in the United States? I know I could move my business, operate it from Israel. I'm not troubled about the chinuch for the kids. Do I have any excuse to still stay in America? And Rishmuel said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he left and hasn't looked back. And the third was the Chosem Lublin. Why the Chosem Lublin? Because the, uh, the question many of us have had and never asked ourselves, uh, or asked others, why is Shalash Shudas called Shalash Shudas rather than Sudat Shlishit, depending on where you live? But there are people who call it Shalash Shudas. So the Chosen Lublin said, I'll tell you why. Because all of us kind of like to fool ourselves and say, sit down at a well apportioned meal in the uh, living in the lap of luxury or semi luxury, and we close our eyes and we say, ah, Shabbos Kodesh. I'm doing this L'shem Shemaim. This is all for you, Rebar Shalom. And um, yeah, after a while, some of us start to doubt, is it really all for him or is it covering my stomach? So the Chosen Lublin says, the first two soothes is very hard to say you're eating it all L'shem Shemaim. There are too many distractions. Then you get the Shabbos afternoon. You're stuffed to the gills from two large meals you had in the last 15 hours. And you remind yourself, I am supposed to eat a kezayas for shalashivas. Who's interested in eating right now? But you eat it anyway. Why? Because halacha says you should, and the Gemara says you should, so you eat it. Ah, he says, now, showing that you can do this l'shem shemaim, that's mala that raises up the other two as well. I figured I lived in LA in comfort in the great town for close to 40 years. If I can sort of turn my back to all of that, say, I'm going to the next phase, I'm going to deal without the convenience, I'm going to sit there in the traffic and the bureaucracy and everything. Just to, to show you, if, if, if I need to do it, I can do it and I'm doing it for you. Hopefully that will atone for some of my excess in the last 40 years. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.